I want you to close your eyes just for a minute. Just close your eyes. I want you to imagine yourself that you are living on an island all by yourself. And uh, all you're doing is just sitting under a shade of a coconut tree. I mean, you know nothing about the outside world. I know it's impossible, but just try. Now you can open your eyes. And all of a sudden, one day, a trunk washes ashore. So you pry the trunk open. And there you find a collection of Christian magazines and best-selling Christian books. And so you grab all of these and you start reading. And you're reading. And you're reading about these Christians on the other side. And as you read, you begin to piece together a picture of what the Christian world looks like. Only from the magazines and the books you're reading, nothing else. You don't know anything about anything else. Just from reading these magazines and these, you paint a picture in your mind. There is no doubt that you're going to begin to think that these people, these Christians, have lots of unmet needs. Lots of unfulfilled needs. Now, I'm not talking about real needs, and I'm not talking about crushing needs. I know all about these. As an islander, all you need is basically finding food to eat and some fresh water to drink. But these Christians on the other side, I mean, they have water coming through a pipe in the wall. They have variety of foods. They're surrounded with so many things that on an island is considered to be absolute luxuries. What could possibly they need, right? What possibly they want? And yet they seem to be spending a fortune on self-help books and self-help magazines. They go and spend their time from a retreat to a conference to a seminar trying to find somebody who's going to meet their unmet needs, their unfulfilled needs. They seem to be talking about burnout. They all talk about midlife crisis. They're talking about stress. They're talking about boredom with life and anxiety in life. They're talking about poor self-image. They're talking about obesity and anorexia and, and sexual orientation and sexual dysfunctions and all of the rest of it. At that point, if that was me, <laughs> the more I learn about life with these Christians, the more I like sitting under the shade of a coconut tree. <laughs> Why would anyone be so obsessed with the so-called unmet needs, when they're so overwhelmingly blessed. More importantly, who, who is whispering in their ear and telling them that our lives are boring and meaningless and unfulfilling? Who is that whispering in their ears? I can answer that question with certainty. It is the same old, low-bellied, poison-fanged, vernum-tongued tempter who's been bewitching us ever since creation. It is that same deceiver who came and whispered in Eve's ear about her unmet and unfulfilled needs, and she fell for it 
and he sold her a bill of goods. Eve was surrounded by luscious fruits. She was surrounded by beautiful uh, fragrance, uh, flowers, uh, warm sunshine, and bubbling spring, pure water. And yet, the tempter succeeded in making her feel. Ah, oh, that's the word. <laughs> feel. He made her feel that she was missing out on something. Oh, girl, good things are passing you by. God really doesn't want you to be happy, does he? And that miserable low life managed to charm her, mesmerize and hypnotize her, and convinced her that God did not really love her because she has unmet needs. Satan's strategy worked, right? Why would he change his strategy? Why would he change it? It worked. And we often say, if it works, why change it? Why reinvent the wheel? And that's exactly what he's been doing ever since. That is why in all of human history, Satan never changes strategy. He has never changed his method. He may kind of do it in different contexts, but he's never changed his strategy. To this day, his plan has been and always will be to make us feel dissatisfied with where we are in our marriages, in our relationships, in our places of worship, to be discontented in the midst of so many blessings. You don't believe me? Well, let me ask you this. Why is it that we spend billions with the B, not millions, but billions of dollars on self-help books and self-help magazines? Why? And that is why Paul here in Galatians chapter 3, he literally shines the light and exposes Satan's strategy. In fact, he's more than that. He's mad. He, he, he is spitting fire. He is saying to them, and indeed he's saying to many in our generation, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Don't you feel sorry for Paul sometimes? I mean, don't you really feel sorry for him? The poor guy, he's a yahoo. I mean, he had never read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I mean, he needs a course in political correctness. He needs a course in tolerance. He, this poor guy, so unsophisticated. Who's going to win friends when he calls them foolish and bewitched? I remember years ago, somebody said to me, he said, Michael, you know that you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And I remember saying at that time, and I didn't have a moment of thought, actually, I'd just come out with it. I said, I am not in the business of catching flies. God called me to preach the truth and to love people enough to tell them the truth. Let me remind you, the Galatians were at a very dangerous point in their Christian life, as indeed many Christians are today. The Galatian Christians were in danger of wandering away from the truth. They were like a ship that has slipped its moorings. Uh, they were drifting on, out into the high seas of unbelief. 
And after the Galatians have heard the gospel, after they received the gospel, after they joyfully experienced it, and they began to walk in the Spirit and the freedom of the Holy Spirit, then comes some false teachers called the Judaizers, and they began to give them another gospel, a false gospel, and they fell for it. And that is why Paul so painfully calls them foolish. I'm sure some of you are saying, well, Michael, I might not know the Bible as well as others, but that word he uses here, foolishness, Jesus somewhere on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and maybe Matthew 5.22, something like that, where he said something about you call somebody foolish, you reserve the hell of fire and all this stuff. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction at all. Listen carefully. It's very important. <laughs> the word that the Lord Jesus Christ uses in Matthew 5.22, the word foolish means somebody who has a mental deficiency, and therefore we must never call somebody with that word, the two Greek words, two separate words. We must never call them people with mental deficiency. It's very different from the word the Apostle Paul uses here, antios, which means unwise. It means that they were lacking in discernment. It means that they were intellectually lazy. It means that they were careless with the truth. It means that they were not testing the spirits to know which is the truth and which is not. He did not call them stupid, which is the other word that's used in Matthew. And he's not saying to them they are incapable of understanding the truth. In fact, they understood the truth. They received the truth. They lived in the truth. They walked in the truth. But then they got lazy. He is telling them that they are not living up to their intellectual potential. He is telling them that they need to live up to their God-given enlightened mind. And imagine the Apostle Paul in our time. What would he say when he sees people who walked in the Spirit, but then they wondered by trying to find some place where they're going to meet unmet needs? When Paul said... Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, Paul is choosing his words very, very carefully. He's selecting his words with absolute care. For when we depart from the walk of faith into the wilderness of preoccupation with unmet needs... When we allow ourselves to be seduced by false gospels, when we uh, opt for entertainment instead of God's truth, we are surrendering to witchcraft and the schemes of the devil. Only the discerning believers are able to stand against the onslaught of so many of these false gospels that are permeating our culture today. These false gospels vary from one to the other, but they have one thing in common. The Word of God is not enough. Jesus is not enough. That's what they have in common among all of them. I don't care what kind of a gospel you hear. If it says Jesus is not enough, the Word of God is not enough, it's a false gospel. There are many church leaders today who are terrified, I mean absolutely terrified, of the false accusation of our culture uh, that the Christian church is behind the times. And when teachers and pastors and preachers fall in that trap, instead of standing up and saying, we are behind the times and we're proud of it, 
instead of standing up and saying, we don't change the truth of the gospel to accommodate to culture, instead of standing up and proudly proclaim, we do not apologize for believing the Word of God. Sadly, instead, accommodating, compromising, inclusiveness, tolerance, and compromise, and all the rest of it. May God have mercy on us. You know the great thing about the Apostle Paul? He never rebukes anyone without giving supportive evidence of the reason for his rebuke. And that's what he does here in the second half of verse 1 all the way to verse 14. He gives his supporting evidence of why he's rebuked them this way. Here he builds his case against their foolishness, against the lack of discernment, He builds up his case, allowing themselves to be deliberately deceived. He is saying to them, do you understand that it is the same Holy Spirit that opened your spiritual eyes and brought you salvation? He is the same Holy Spirit. He's going to sustain you through the storms of life, and He's going to take you all the way home safely to heaven. Do you understand? In fact, Paul insisted here that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, salvation always has been, salvation always will be as a gift of God's grace, received by faith and sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Now, some people who think that the Holy Spirit is a goal that you try to attain, that's a false gospel. The Holy Spirit is not a goal you need to strive for. The Holy Spirit is the source of your Christian life. He is the one who came into your life and opened your eyes and brought you salvation. Without Him, faith would have been impossible. Others think that the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life is the byproduct of their faithfulness. That's a false gospel too, (laughs) because the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers me, who empowers you to be faithful. Without the Holy Spirit, faithfulness would have been impossible. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, obedience to God would have been impossible. You see, when you try to please God by works of the flesh, or religious rituals, or self-help, or self-improvement, God will never be that far, far from being pleased. It's the opposite will happen. In fact, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, was not saved by works. He was not saved through circumcision, which the Judaizers were preaching as a necessary for salvation. He is saying to them that did not happen. He was saved by faith. In fact, circumcision took place 14 years after he was declared saved by the Lord. Abraham could not possibly have been saved by the keeping of the law. Very simple reason for that. The law was given 500 years after Abraham. He was saved by grace and not works. He was righteous because he took God at his word. And from Abraham on, every faithful believer has been saved because they took God at his word. They believed God. Here's the one thing that you must understand about legalism that I've been talking about. Legalism is basically another word for trying to bribe God. Imagine trying to bribe 
the one who has everything. Try to get a, a guy who's worth billions and says, well, I'll give you $10 if you let me. You're bribing somebody who doesn't need it? How? By attempting to keep the rituals and the religious activities, by attempting to keep the facade. And you look at heaven and you say, well, God, I am good to you. I really am. I went to church. I put a buck in the offering plate. Well, God, you got to understand, I take communion. As a matter of fact, God, I gave up chocolate during Lent. Whoa, isn't that something? I helped somebody. I developed a positive mental attitude, God. Now, God, I've been good to you. Now you'll be good to me. Beloved, God looks at the heart. God cannot be bribed. God knows if you truly love him or not. God knows if you desire with all your heart to obey Him or not. God knows if you trust Him or not. God knows if you're worshiping Him in spirit and truth or not. It is only when you understand what life of faith is all about. A lot of people confused about that. But it's only when you understand what life of faith is all about will you experience victory in life. I want to repeat that. Only when you understand what the life of faith is all about will you experience victory in life. Can I get a witness? You see, trusting God completely and totally is the answer to everything. (laughs) It is the answer to your fear. It's the answer to your anxiety. It's the answer to your discontentment. It's the answer to your midlife crisis. It's the answer to your dissatisfaction. It is the answer to your unfulfilled needs. It is the answer to your unmet needs. It is the answer for facing all the evil and wickedness that we're seeing in our society today. I'm not making the stuff up. It's in the book. Listen to what John said in 1 John 5, 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. I'm going to stop right here. I'm sure some say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's got to be more to it than that because I'm defeated. I'm not overcoming the world. I'm living a life of defeat. How come everyone born of God? You mean everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that everyone is, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Now listen to the rest of the text. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Try all you can. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And it goes on to say, By faith, kingdoms were subdued. Righteousness were wrought. Promises were fulfilled. Mouths of lions were shut. Hungry were fed. The sick was healed. The weak was made strong. Armies of the enemies, as we saw in the last message, were confounded, confused, and defeated. See, that's what faith does. Faith has nothing to do with feelings. Can you say that with me? Faith has... 
Your feelings can change. And they do change all the time. I know mine do. I mean, your feelings will change with the weather. Uh, your feeling will change with the stock market. Uh, your feeling can change with a f- lousy phone call that you get that ruin your day, or, or, or an email uh, that just devastates you, or, or, or a letter. Or, uh, sometimes our feelings change with, with hormones and with body chemistry. But beloved, listen to me. Never, never, never let your mood dictate the level of your faith. St. Augustine once said, and I quote, If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel that you believe but yourself. But isn't that what all these best-selling books are telling us? Believe in yourself. And when it doesn't work, you get back in the humdrum, where will that end? Where will that end? In my case, when I am on my face before God, I find myself saying with Habakkuk, and by the way, let me give you a Yusuf translation of what Habakkuk said. God, it stinks right now. (laughs) God, it doesn't make sense right now. God, I don't understand this right now. Ah, but I fully trust your word. I fully trust in your promises. I fully trust you, and I take you at your word. Faith has nothing to do with our circumstances. Faith is seeing that God already did it. Faith comes from absolute unwavering and unbending trust in the infallible Word of God. When everybody else is distrusting it, my faith is anchored deep in the Word of God. Faith is not God helps us or help themselves. Faith is not God does His part and I've got to do my part. That's bewitched gospel. Faith is not believing God can, but God will. Faith even goes stronger than that. It is seeing that God already did it before seeing it. Listen to me. If He said it, then He did it. Can you say that with me? If He said it, then He did it. You can't see it? Yes. You not experience it? Yes. But He did it. Here in Galatians 3 and in Romans 9, twice, the Apostle Paul said that the true descendants of Abraham, not the ones who are ethnically descendant of Abraham, the true descendants of Abraham, read Galatians 3, are those who follow in the faith of Abraham. No wonder Jesus made them hopping mad. I mean, he really made them mad when he said to them, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. They said, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old yet. What do you mean Abraham saw your day? See, in the flesh. They did not know they were talking to the creator of the universe. Abraham saw the day of Christ. For when God said to Abraham, Abraham, my boy, I want you to leave home and the comfort of home, and the surroundings of home, and all of your loved ones, and I want you to go to a place. I'm not going to tell you where, but when you get there, I'm going to tell you. He said, yes, sir. Remember this. He didn't have a preacher. He didn't have a Bible study. Didn't have a small group together. Didn't have counseling. Didn't have anything. 
Just God said it. And he took him at his word. When God said to him, take your son of promise, Isaac, and offer him to me, Abraham said, yes, sir. I know what I ought to have done. I said, wait a minute, God. But you told me he's the one through whom I'm going to be blessed. He's the one by whom I'm going to fill the earth. God, you said, it's like the sand, like the stars. What are you doing, God? Abraham figured it out that God probably going to form the first resurrection in history. And he obeyed. Why? If God said it, he what? That's what Abraham believed. Because Abraham believed God so much that he knew God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. And that is why I say to you, beloved, listen to me. All the self-help and the self-worth and the self-gritting of your teeth and the self-pulling yourself by your bootstraps and the self-this and the self-this and the self-that cannot create righteousness. No, in fact, it insults God. For faith honors God. But just in case some lazy person says, all right then, tomorrow morning I'm not going to get out of bed. I'm just going to have faith God to provide for me. Just not so fast. That is not faith. That's slothfulness. Faith and faithfulness on the job go together. They go hand in hand. And that's why Paul told the Colossians, he said, when you do your job, even when the boss is not watching, remember God is watching because he's the one who's going to reward you. And when you're faithful, God will reward you for your faithfulness. There are a lot of Christians suffer from what I call the Scarlet O'Hara Syndrome. Most of you know what I'm going to say. That wonderful, incredible novel of Margaret Mitchell, Gone with the Wind. Scarlett O'Hara was the heroine of the story, was born to wealth. She was born to privilege. I mean, she had everything a young woman would want to have. Everything. I mean, she had beauty, she had youth, she had health, she had power, she had money, she had love. But no matter how much she had, she was never satisfied. She always had this unmet need. She always craved for more. While she had the love of her husband, Red Butler, she desired Ashley Welks, the husband of her friend Melanie. She could never be contented. Never satisfied with what she had. And her lack of contentment drove her husband to a drink and finally drove him away. But when Scarlett finally realized that she really what she wanted is her husband, it was too late. It's too late. There are a lot of Christians, spiritually speaking, are in that boat. Many would look at the story and would say, how foolish, how blind, how could she do that? Just... Stop for a moment. How many times we are guilty of that same foolishness when we become restless and want more in our spiritual life? Jesus is not enough. His Word is not enough. When we whine and complain, the Word of God is not enough. And we get restless of thinking that somebody else, someplace else, some other style, some other experience... We have unfelt needs. Be very careful. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.